Day 1 Jim Butcher My name is Waldo Butters, and I am a Jedi Knight, like my father before me. Okay, so that isn't exactly, technically, in a completely legal sense, true. I mean, my dad was actually a podiatrist. But I'm as close to the real deal as anyone is likely to ever see in this world. I'm an actual knight, anyway. Or at least, I was training to be one, when, on a Thursday morning, I first heard the call. Only, I didn't hear it exactly, technically, in a completely legal sense. Look, maybe I should just tell the story. Of all the training Michael Carpenter had me doing, the cardio part was what I liked best. Then again, my main Pandora station only plays polka music, so what the heck do I know? I ran along through the early dawn light in Bucktown while the city began to wake up. The training belt around my waist tugged at my balance constantly and unpredictably. It was hooked to a bungee cord attaching me to Michael's bicycle, being pulled along behind me as I ran. Michael would swerve and brake randomly. Sometimes he'd hold the brake for several strides, and I'd have to shift to much more powerful strides to keep moving. It was demanding work. Constantly being forced to alter my balance meant that I could never fall into a nice, efficient rhythm, and I had to pay attention to every single step. The first several weeks, that had been a problem. But I was getting used to it now. Or rather, I was getting used to it until I saw something impossible. Forgot to pay attention got pulled off balance by my bungee cord, and crashed into a plastic recycling bin waiting by the side of the street. Michael immediately came to a stop, swinging his stiff leg out like an improvised kickstand. He was action hero-sized, moving toward his late fifties, and had his walking cane strapped to the backpack he wore. Waldo? he asked. Are you all right? I stumbled upright again, panting. I... ah... Uh, I peered down the street. I'm not really sure... Michael looked in the same direction I was, frowning. He pursed his lips thoughtfully. You don't see that, do you? I asked. See what? I squinted, took off my glasses, cleaned them on a corner of my shirt that wasn't covered in sweat, put them back on, and checked again. It was still there. If you could see it, you wouldn't have to ask that. He nodded seriously. Tell me what you see. That homeless guy on the bench? I asked. Yes. I took a breath and said, There's a big yellow exclamation point floating over his head. After a brief pause, I added, I'm not crazy. My mother had me tested. Michael sat back a little on the bike's seat and rubbed at his beard pensively. He missed the reference. Hmm. Odd. Does that bring anything to mind for you? Personally? I snorted. Yeah. It's what every NPC in every MMORPG ever looks like when they have a quest to give you. There were a great many letters in that, and not much that I understood, he said soberly. Video games, I clarified. When a game character has a quest for you, that's how the game shows you where the quest begins. A big floaty exclamation point over their heads. You go talk to them, and that's how the quest starts. Michael barked out a laugh and gave the sky a small smile and a shake of his head. Well then, Sir Waldo, you've just had your first call. My what now? Your first call to a quest, I suppose. I blinked. Uriel talks to the knights through video game symbolism? As far as I know, Uriel talks in person. The call comes from higher up. What? I asked. You mean like... God? God speaks video game? When the Almighty speaks to men, he always does it in voices they can understand, Michael said. When I felt the call, it was always a still, small voice that would come to me when I was in prayer, or otherwise quiet. Sometimes I'd have a very strong impression of a name, or a face, and a direction that I needed to go. He nodded toward the transient. Apparently, you have been called to help that man. Put like that, it does seem to be fairly obvious. I swallowed. Um, I know we've been training pretty hard, but am I really ready for this? He reached into the backpack, withdrew an old leather messenger bag from it, and offered it to me. Let's find out. I swallowed. Then I nodded and slung the bag over one shoulder. 
I reached into it and patted the worn old wooden handle inside, and then walked over to the sleeping man. He wore an army surplus field jacket, old Desert Storm-style khaki BDUs, and he had a beard that birds could have nested in. There wasn't much gray in it, but his skin was weathered enough to make it difficult to guess his age. Forty? By the time I got within five feet of him, I could see that something was wrong. There was a lot of vomit on the slatted bench by the man's head, and the ground beneath. One of his eyes was half open, dilated, and his breath rasped in and out. Hey, I said. Hey, buddy. Can you hear me? No response. I knelt down and took his wrist, feeling for his pulse. It was hard because it was thready and irregular. Hey, I said gently. Hey, man. Can you hear me? He let out a little groan. I checked his other eye. The pupil was normal in that one. I didn't enjoy the work of being an actual physician, professionally. I liked examining corpses for the state of Illinois. Corpses never lie to you, never give you opaque answers, never ask stupid questions, or ignore what you tell them they need to do. Corpses are simple. And this guy, who wasn't nearly as old as I had thought when I walked up to him, was going to be one if he didn't get attention fast. Call 911. I said to Michael. I think he's had a stroke, maybe an overdose. Either way, he's lucky he slept on his side or he'd have choked on his own vomit by now. He needs an ER. Michael nodded once, hobbled a few feet away, and produced a cell phone from a leather case on his belt. He called and began speaking quietly. Okay, buddy, I said to the guy. Hang in there. We're calling the good guys and they're going to help you. I don't even know what happened. One second he was lying there, a wheezy vegetable, and the next he was coming at me, hard, his ragged, nailed hands grasping for my throat while he gurgled, No hospital. A few months ago, I'd have gotten strangled right there. But a few months ago, I hadn't been training in hand-to-hand -hand with Michael's wife, Charity. It takes several thousand repetitions of emotion to develop motor memory pathways in the brain to the point where you can consider the motion a reflex. To that end, Charity, who was into jujitsu, had made me practice several different defenses a hundred times each, every day, for the past two months. She didn't practice by just going through a motion slowly and gradually speeding up, either. She just came at me like she meant to disassemble me, and if I didn't defend successfully, it freaking hurt. You learn fast in those circumstances, and one of the basic defenses she drilled into me had been against a simple front choke. Both of my forearms snapped up, knocking the grasping hands away, even as I ducked my head and rolled my body to one side. He kept coming, and I got a hold of his right arm as he went through the space where I'd been. His arm hit my face and sent my glasses spinning off me. I fought down a decades-old panic as the world shifted from its usual shapes into sudden streaks and blurs of color. Look, I wear some big, thick glasses. I'm not quite legally blind without them. I know, because after I gave my optometrist a very expensive bottle of whiskey, he told me so. But without them... Without them, it's pretty tough to get anything done. Or see anything more than an arm's length away. Seriously, I'd once mistaken a dressmaker's mannequin for my girlfriend. Reading was all but impossible without them. Reading. My great nightmare is to be stuck somewhere without them, trapped, peering at the sea of fuzzy things that couldn't possibly be identified. When I'd been a kid, the first thing the bullies did, always, was knock my glasses off. Always. It was like they'd all had a sixth sense or something. Then they would start having fun with me. That wasn't a delight either. But it was the not knowing what was coming that made it all worse. Inside, that kid started screaming and wailing. But there was no time to indulge him. I had a problem to solve. And the carpenters had given me the tools I needed to solve it. For instance, they taught me that once things are this close, you don't really get a lot done with your eyes when it came to fighting. It was all speed and reflex and knowing where the enemy was and what he was doing by feel. I was sloppy, and it took me a second, but I managed to lock the bum's arm out straight. I kept it moving, got my body to twist at the right angle to put pressure on the shoulder joint, and brought him flat onto his face on the sidewalk with enough force to send stars flying into his vision and stun him. It didn't stun him much. No hospital, he screamed, 
thrashing. I fought to control the fear that was running through me. He was operating with more strength than he should have been. But it didn't matter. Physics is physics, and his arm was one long lever that I had control of. He might have been bigger and stronger than me, and the way we were positioned, that didn't matter in the least. He fought for a few more seconds, and then the burst of frenzy began to peter out. No hospital. No hospital. He shuddered and began to weep. His voice became a plea, rendered flat with despair. No hospital. Please, please. No hospital. Then he went limp and made slow, regular rasping sounds. I eased off the pressure and gave him his arm back. It fell limply to the sidewalk as he cried. Buddy, I said. Hey, it's going to be all right. I'm Waldo. What's your name? Stan, he said in a hollow voice. Hey, Stan, I said. Try not to worry. We're going to get you taken care of. You're killing me, he said. You're killing me. Your pulse is erratic, your breathing is impaired, and your eyes are showing different levels of dilation, Stan. What are you on? Nothing, he said. You're killing me, damn you. In a few minutes, the ambulance arrived. A few seconds later, someone tapped the side of my chest with my glasses and I put them back on. I looked up to an EMT, a blocky black guy named Lamar. I knew him. He was a solid guy. Thanks, man, I said. You tackle this guy? He asked. Shoot, you ain't no bigger than a chicken dinner. But spicy, I said. I gave him everything I had about Stan, and they got him checked, loaded up, and ready to head out to the ER in under four minutes. Hey, Lamar, I said as he was rolling the gurney. Yes, Examiner Mulder? Scully was the M.E., I complained. How come no one calls me Examiner Scully? Cause you ain't a thinking man's tart, Lamar drawled. What you need? Where are you taking him? St. Anthony's? I nodded. Is there anything, um, odd happening over there lately? Nah, Lamar said, scratching his chin. Not that I've seen, but it's only Tuesday. Do me a favor, I said. Keep your eyes open. Hell, butters, he said. Let me rephrase that, I said. Let me know if you see anything odd. It might be important. Lamar gave me a long look. I already had a reputation and history with supernatural weirdness, even before I met Harry Dresden and learned how scary the world really is. Lamar had gotten a few peeks at the Twilight Zone, too, over the years, and wanted nothing to do with it. Because Lamar was pretty bright. We'll see, he said. Thanks, I said. We shook hands, and he left. Michael came to stand next to me as the ambulance pulled away. You hear that? I asked him. Most of it? What do you think? He leaned on his cane and blew out a slow breath through his lips, frowning in thought. I think, he said finally, that you're the knight now, Waldo. Somehow, I just knew you were going to say that, I said. It might be nothing. I mean, I suspect Stan was strung out on uppers and downers and God knows what else. And if some commuter had been the one to try to wake him, he might have strangled them. Maybe this was a low-level warm-up quest, you know? That might have been the whole thing right there. Maybe, Michael agreed, nodding. What does your heart tell you? My heart? I asked. I'm a doctor, Michael. My heart doesn't tell me anything. It's a muscle that pumps blood. My brain does all of that other stuff. Michael smiled. What does your heart tell you? I sighed. I mean, sure, it could have been something really simple and easy, Mathematically, that was possible. But everything I'd seen about the supernatural world told me that the Knights of the Cross were only sent into matters of life and death. And like it or not, when I'd decided to keep the Sword of Faith, I'd decided to get myself involved in situations that would be scary and dangerous, and necessary, without actually knowing exactly what was going on or why I was being sent. I wasn't really hero material. Even with my recent training, I was small and skinny and rumpled, and I'd never drunk from the fountain of youth. I was a mature, nerdy Jewish medical examiner, not some kind of daring adventurer. But I guess I was the guy who had been given the sword, 
and Stan needed my help. I nodded and said, Let's head back to your place. Of course, Michael said. What are you going to do? Get the rest of my stuff, I said, and then check up on Stan at St. Tony's. Better safe than sorry. Michael pulled up to the hospital in his solid, hard-working white pickup truck and frowned. God go with you, Waldo. You still don't like it, do you? I asked him. The skull is a very dangerous object, he said. It doesn't understand love. It doesn't understand faith. That's what we're here for, right? I asked him. It's not for me, Michael said, setting his jaw. You think I should take it on my first quest with me? I asked. God almighty, no, Michael said. Just keep an eye on it until I get back. If it fell into the wrong hands, it won't be my problem because I'll be all dead and stuff, I said. Michael, give me a break. I don't need you rattling my confidence right now, right? He looked chagrined for a second and then nodded. Of course. If you weren't the right person, the sword wouldn't have come to you. Unless it was an honest accident. Michael smiled. I don't believe in accidents. I'd better get out. If God has any sense of humor at all, you're going to get rear-ended any second now. I said and got out of the car. I'll call you when I know something. God go with you, Michael said, and pulled away, leaving me standing on the curb alone. Just me. Oi. I took a deep breath, tried to imagine myself about two feet taller than I actually was, and walked quickly into the hospital. Moving around a hospital without being noticed is pretty easy. You just wear a doctor's white coat and some scrubs and some comfortable shoes and walk like you know exactly where you're going. It also helps to have a doctor's ID, and an actual MD, and to actually be a doctor who has sometimes worked there, and to actually know exactly where you're going. I'm a doctor, dammit, not a spy. Patterson, I said to a lanky ER nurse with a buzz cut and a lumberjack's beard. How's my favorite druid? Patterson looked up at me from a form-field-filled computer screen and squinted. Waldo Butters. A.K.A. I put the pal in the paladin. Your guild stiffed our guild on a treasure roll two weeks ago. I pushed my glasses up on my nose. Yeah, I've been kind of busy. Haven't been online to keep the power gamers in check. My word, I'll have Andy look into it, and we'll make it up to you guys. The nurse scowled at me, but let out a mollified grunt. Hell are you doing down here? They kick you out of corpse sickles or us? Not yet, I said, though they might, with as many times as I'd called in sick lately. I hadn't been sick, just too bruised and sore to move right. Look, I'm kind of here on something personal. Maybe you could help me out? Patterson stared at me with unamused eyes. Not to get too much into the details, but HIPAA basically means that no one who wants to remain working in the medical field can share any patient information with anyone who isn't directly involved in that patient's care, unless the patient gives permission to do so. It's the kind of thing people get reflexively paranoid about. Also, the kind of thing you have to ask a favor to get them to overlook. Why should I? he asked. Because I have something you want, I said. What? I leaned a bit closer and looked up and down the hall theatrically before speaking in a lowered tone. What about a blue murloc egg? Patterson sat up ramrod straight and his eyes widened. What? You heard me, I said. Dude, don't even joke about it, he breathed. You know it's the last one I need. 2005 was a very good year, I drawled. I reached into my pocket and produced a plastic card from my wallet. Behold, one code for one blue murloc. The rarest pet in all the game can be thine. Patterson reached for the card with twitchy fingers, and I snapped it a bit farther away from him. Do we have a deal? It's legit. I dropped the drama voice. Yeah, man, I was actually at the con. It's real, you have my word. Patterson crowed and seized the card with absolutely Gollum-esque avarice. Pleasure doing business with you, I put the pal in. He gestured for me to join him behind the desk, and rubbed his hands together in mock epic greed. What you need? 
That's the thing about knowing a lot of gamers. They do not necessarily count their riches with bank accounts. Not when there are virtual status symbols to acquire. Guy got admitted a couple of hours ago, ER, first name Stan, I said. I sent him in with Reg Lamar, probable overdose. I want to see him. Patterson started thumping on computer keys. You sent him in? Out jogging this morning, found him seizing, I said. He stopped typing for a second and looked at me. Then he looked back at the monitor and said, Someone's taking his character way too seriously. Nah, I just have too many corpse sickles already, I said. You're just lucky it happened in the morning. We start getting busy come the afternoon. I started to tell him that luck hadn't had anything to do with it, and felt myself shiver. I mean, that's kind of a huge thing to think about, you know? That in all probability, luck really hadn't been involved? That God, or some version of God, who the Knights simply referred to as the Almighty, had knowingly arranged for me to be in the right place at the right time to help Stan, and that he, or she, or it, I mean, I didn't want to get too presumptuous, all things considered, and how should I know, had done so in such a way as to make it uniquely possible for me, personally, to go help Stan. Could God, with all the majesty of the universe at his disposal, with the uncounted myriad of life forms to look after throughout practically uncountable galaxies, really be all that interested in one little drug addict? One little medical examiner playing at being a hero? Answer that question with a yes or no and tell me which is the more terrifying. I'm not sure I can. I'd asked Michael the same question, more or less. He'd been of the opinion that God couldn't not be interested on a personal level. That he knew each and every one of us too well to be anything less than passionately involved in caring about our lives and our choices. And honestly, that seemed a little stalkery to me. I mean, bad enough when your mom is too interested in what you do. Do you really want God looking over your shoulder at every moment? Me, personally, that was too embarrassing to even consider. In the end, I decided that whatever the Almighty might care about or not care about, he seemed to be interested in helping people who needed help, at least where the Knights of the Cross were concerned. So, okay, fine, I could work with the guy. But all these deep questions bothered me. Here he is, top of the list, Patterson said. Oh, Stanley Bowers. Been in and out a lot lately. I think I know this guy. Addict? One of the worst I've seen. Got maybe a year left in him if the weather isn't too bad. Got a sedative, saline, observation. How's he get the drugs? Disability and some kind of court settlement? Pretty much sticks it up his nose. Won't do rehab. Family? Nah, we've looked. Damn, I said. You want to help guys like this? Patterson said. But he doesn't want to help himself. You know, you can't save someone who don't want to be saved. Doesn't mean we can't try, I said. Where is he? Patterson peered at the monitor and rattled the keys a couple more times. Then he said, huh, that's weird. As a medical examiner, I don't spend a lot of time in pediatrics. Neither, as a rule, do adult junkies. But, for some reason, Stan had been moved up with the kids. I rode the elevator up, trying to look distracted and disinterested, like a proper physician, most of whom were operating on not much sleep, at least part of the time. But it was tough, because I was feeling something that I suspected was a deeper-than-usual anger. Whatever had hurt Stan was bad enough. But now there were kids involved. And some things you just don't do. You know? I walked briskly into pediatrics. There are a ton of pediatric physicians at St. Tony's, plus various pediatric specialists, consulting physicians, etc., etc. The floor was busy, its beds full, and the nurses had their plates full. And to make things worse, there were renovators at work on the floor. Plastic sheets hung from some of the walls, shutting parts of the floor off from the rest, and buckets and tools and sawhorses and materials were stacked up. Blurry shapes just out of sight on the other side of the first layer of curtains. Workmen, tagged with hospital tags and clearly utterly ignorant of the place's rhythms, were walking out, evidently headed to an early lunch break. One of them was flirting with a young nurse who obviously had a mile of work to do. 
It was kind of pandemonium, or what passes for it in an orderly hospital. I confess that I took advantage of it. I breezed in without any trouble, swooped up an armful of charts, and kept moving as though I knew exactly where I was going, scanning the charts as I did. I stepped into the first room where a girl, maybe eight or nine, was curled up into a fetal position on her side. She had a very pale little face, and hollows under her eyes as dark as tire marks on a city road. Her hair was brown and listless. I checked charts and found hers. Her name was Gabrielle. She twitched violently as she slept. Her breathing was unsteady, and she made constant sounds as she exhaled. I'd never been a father, but I didn't have to be to know that little girl was in the grips of a nightmare. And given the medicine and her IV, she wasn't going to be able to get out of it. I read the charts, and they told me the story. Seven kids plus Stan were down with a remarkably similar set of symptoms. Paranoia, hysteria, insomnia, and a refusal to go to sleep due to horrible nightmares, especially any time at night, necessitating chemical intervention. Eight people. Holy moly. If that many people were down, and a knight of the cross had been sent to deal with it, even if that knight was me, it meant that there was a supernatural predator of some kind at work. A genuine grade-A monster that was all mine to deal with. Just me. I guess maybe this wasn't a beginner's quest. I slipped out of the room and into the next one in the hall and found Stan. He'd been restrained as well as being sedated, which, damn it, should not have been happening in his condition. He should have been on saline and close monitoring until his body had a chance to process whatever combination of street drugs he'd been on that nearly killed him. He was in the same condition as the little girl, or worse, out of it obviously suffering from some terrible dream and unable to escape it. His pulse was thready, his breath erratic, and his monitoring equipment had been jiggered. It was showing numbers that could not possibly have matched up to his respiration and heartbeat. Someone had done this to him. Jesus, Stan, I said. I sent you into this. I'm sorry. I should have listened to you. He didn't respond, though his head kind of twitched in my direction. There was something desperate in the little movement. I bit my lip and put my hand on his head. Hang in there, buddy, I told him. Whatever power is given to me, I'll use it to help you. I promise. If whatever had done that to Stan and the kids found me snooping around, it would be happy to do exactly the same thing to me. My heart started beating faster. It took me a second to realize that it was pounding in time with rapid footsteps coming down the hall. Women's heels. Click-clack, click-clack, firm and purposeful. I had a couple of seconds to realize that my fear and the footsteps were connected, and then, just in case that hadn't been enough, an open square, maybe four feet by four, made of red light, appeared on the wall, evidently tracking the movement of something hostile coming down the hall toward the door to Stan's room. I eyed the ceiling and muttered, I get the point. I looked around the room and weighed my options as my terror increased, and then ratcheted up more, and I panicked. I stepped into the bathroom and shut the door until it was almost all the way closed, and held very still. The monster stepped into sight. She wasn't much of a monster as they went, maybe five-four in the low heels, a woman of slender build with dark hair. She was of Asian extraction, and her name tag read Dr. Miyamune. Behind the thick, dark rims of her glasses, her eyes were absolutely crystalline blue. As she came into the room, she paused, and her eyes swept back and forth, right past me. She didn't look old, maybe mid-thirties, like a doctor who had finished her internship and was a few years into a specialist's residency. Those blue eyes fastened hard on Stan, and suddenly she wasn't just a woman in a white lab coat anymore. She changed, right in front of me. It wasn't a physical transformation. I mean, a camera wouldn't have shown you bupkis. This was something deeper, something intangible. Her posture changed slightly from rigidly proper into a more relaxed, looser-limbed tension. Her eyes narrowed. It was her mouth that was worst. Her lips just sort of lifted away from her teeth. The expression was damned creepy, 
and I felt a little sick at the stomach. Monster is a subjective word, but the thing that was hiding inside a human shape met the definition. I held absolutely still. Miyamune stalked from one side of Stan's bed to the other, focused on him, then turned and paced back, like a restless lion at the zoo. For a moment, she did nothing else, but Stan reacted. His soft sounds increased in pitch, and as they did, her eyes seemed to brighten. She put one hand on the bed and ran it over his bedclothes, not actually touching him, dragging her fingertips along as she went, and Stan's breathing became ragged. Desperate. She was feeding on him, maybe on his fear, drawing the life out of him. Stan was getting close. Well, time to saddle up. I moved one arm toward the bag at my side, cloth making a soft whisper as it slid across cloth. And she heard it. I had my fingertips on the smooth wooden hill to Fidelakius. When her hand and arm smashed through the wooden bathroom door in a shower of splinters, seized me by the lab coat, and flung me out of the bathroom and into the opposite wall. I couldn't believe the force of it. Miyamune's arm tore through the rest of the door as if the wood had been damp cardboard, tearing the sleeves of her coat and shirt to ribbons while leaving the skin beneath untouched. I dimly registered that I was up against a being with supernatural strength as I flew, relaxed, and hit the wall as flat as I could my arms slapping back as if taking a fall in judo, one of the other things Charity had taught me. It worked. I spread out the impact enough to keep it from shattering any bones and came down on my feet, more or less, hand fumbling for my bag. Miyamune stared at me for a second, facing me from the far side of the bed over Stan's knees. Then, without taking her eyes from me, she reached behind her, as if she knew exactly where to move her arm, and calmly locked the hospital door. Which did not, at all, send part of me into a gibbering panic. My hands shook so hard that I could barely feel the hilt to Fidelakius as my fingers closed around it. One chance, I heard myself say, my voice a pale ghost of itself. Leave. Leave them. All of them. Do it now. And you have my word that you get to walk away alive. Her mouth curled up in pure contempt at one corner. And who is it you think you are, little man? All you need to know is this, I said and drew out the sword. There was a sound too musical to be called a shriek, too fierce and furious to be called a chord of music. From the old broken wooden hilt in my hand sprang a blade of light, three feet long and shining white. The sound of the blade's birth settled into a humming musical chord, something low and ominous. Miyamune faced me without any reaction at all. The sword's light reflected in two bright bars from her crystalline blue eyes, and the shadow that the sword's light cast on the wall behind her was not shaped at all like her. It was something hulking, with a leonine mane and a writhing tendril of some kind whipping around its head. Her skin, too, became semi-translucent in the sword's light, showing shapes that moved and shifted beneath the surface, some kind of gray and gold mush of colors, as if something far too large for it had been forced into Miyamune's tiny form. I make you an offer, little man, she said in calm reply. Leave this place. Leave what is mine to me. I will permit you to spend the rest of your days exposed only to the nightmares you have created for yourself. Sorry, lady, I said. I can't do that. Step away from that man. I moved the sword to emphasize my words. The cord bobbed and changed with the sword's motion, rising to a higher, tenser pitch as it edged closer, and lowering against as it backed away. The only other time I'd drawn the sword in earnest... The guy I'd pulled it on had panicked. Miyamune kicked Stan's bed at my legs. She moved fast, but I'd been paranoid enough to sense the movement and dodge in the only direction that wouldn't have hemmed my movement in more, and it was the right way to move. I avoided the bed, shuffle-stepped forward with my feet dragging the floor just slightly to make sure I wouldn't lift them and put them down on anything that would trip me, and swept the blade in a clean cut at her midsection. Miyamune avoided the blow by an inch, with a gracefully timed step back, 
and flung her clipboard at me with supernatural strength. It made an ugly hissing sound as it came, tearing bits off the papers that were on it. I barely got the sword in the way, splitting the plastic clipboard as if it had sliced with a laser cutter, sending a small cloud of sliced printer paper into the air. The pieces of clipboard flew past me and, from the sound of it, buried themselves quivering in the drywall. One of her heels was coming along the floor in a leg sweep, even before I had finished the defensive cut. I shifted my weight back, barely in time, and she kicked my forward leg hard enough to make it go numb, but didn't send me to the ground with the kick. I swept the sword into a clumsy arc as I fought for my balance. It forced her to duck to one side instead of following up in my moment of vulnerability, directly towards Stan. No, I said. She seized his throat and her hand flexed. As quickly as that, Stan's labored breaths stopped completely as she closed off his windpipe. That predator looked out of the doctor's face, and its blue eyes danced with amusement. I'll kill him, she said. One move, little man, and I will end his life. Don't, I breathed. Her smile widened a little as she regarded the sword, still humming with the power of an angry chorus. Silence stretched. I was like you once, she said finally. Something ugly went through those blue eyes. Struggling to protect them. What a fool I was. Yeah? I asked. Look, we don't have to be doing the combat thing. Be glad to talk with you about it. Coffee? Maybe some nosh? What do you say? She sneered. Do you think I care about your thoughts, little mortal? How will you know if you never hear them? I asked, mildly. Whatever I'd said, it was the wrong thing. Pure rage flared through her features. So righteous, she spat. Then she looked me up and down and said, I offer you a trade for his life. Um, I said. I'm listening. Give me your glasses. That made my heart all but stop. Suddenly that scared ten-year-old kid inside me was screaming again. Give me, Miyamune purred, your glasses, or I kill him right now. If I do, I said quietly, you walk away. You leave him alone. For as long as you live and breathe, Miyamune said. I swallowed. Stan was here because of me. I took one hand off the sword and reached up. The world dissolved into a blur of vague color as I took off my glasses, and my stomach jumped and twitched in random spasms of pure, unfiltered childhood fear. I felt the glasses in my fingers heavy and cool. Then I tossed them toward the last place it seemed like Miyamune had been standing. There was no sound of the glasses falling. She must have caught them silently. A second later, there were crackling, popping sounds, and the sound of safety glass pattering to the floor in little squares like so many oversized grains of sugar. Little protector, Miyamune said a moment later. I will make you suffer. I give you as long as it will take me to shoo the mortals from this floor. Then I will hunt you. I will feed on you. And in the end, I will take your life. There was a clack as the door unlocked. Then it opened. Run, Miyamune said softly, and others will die in your place. Then the door closed again. The whole time her feet never made a sound on the floor. But I had that feeling, that certainty you have when you're standing in a room that isn't otherwise occupied. My legs gave out and I found myself sitting helplessly on the floor next to Stan's bed as he whimpered in his nightmares. The light of the sword went out when I hit the floor. I sat with him in the blind gloom. I was breathing too fast and making sounds just like him. Yellow, answered a voice when I speed-dialed one on my cell phone by touch. Harry's taxidermy, you snuff em, we'll stuff em.
It's me, I said. The levity vanished from his voice. Butters, what's wrong? I, uh, I said. I... I am the wrong person to be a knight of the cross is what I wanted to say, but instead I said, What are you doing? You just caught us, getting set to take Maggie and Mouse to the zoo to meet Mighty Mo, he replied, his voice holding gentle cheer. Going to be a good time. You ever been to the zoo? Not really an animal guy, I said. You should come along, maybe, he said. I felt myself laugh weakly. I can't. Working. Which hat you wearing? The Jedi hat, I said. Oh, he said. He was quiet for a second, then exhaled slowly. Guess they're starting you early. How bad? It's bad, I said. I... I might need help. There was a long silence from the other end of the phone. It hissed and crackled with static. He was upset. Wizards play merry hell with electronics around them when they get emotional. Even on an old landline, nothing was a sure bet. Especially not around Harry Dresden. I won't come, he said quietly. What? I asked. Harry? Michael told me something once that I thought was utter crap, he said. But I'm going to tell it to you now. What? I demanded. You're a knight now, Butters. You're working for the freaking Almighty. And he won't give you a burden bigger than your shoulders can bear. Harry, he already has, I said. I didn't say it, honestly. I sort of gibbered it. Butters, he snapped. I'd heard him use that tone of voice one other time. Exactly once. It had been in a basement, and zombies had been coming to kill us. Polka will never die, I breathed. It came out smooth and automatic. It was kind of a mantra of mine. Good man, he said. Tell me what's going on. I did. I stuttered a lot. I stammered a lot. Wait, he said. The thing's shadow. A lion's mane and a damned elephant's trunk? I thought of the thrashing tendril in the thing's shadow. Yeah, uh, I guess it could have been. And it had blue eyes, didn't it? I hadn't gotten to that part yet. Yeah, I said, it did. They were crazy. Hell, he said. It's a bakabaku. What is that? I asked. I've never heard of that creature. Because it isn't real, he said. Or it wasn't, until the 90s. I mean, there was a thing called a baku in Japanese lore, but it wasn't the same thing at all. Look, some company made a kid's stuffed toy, called it a dream eater, said that it was a magical protector that ate bad dreams before children could have them. Came with a little book that explained the whole thing. I'm fighting a stuffed animal? I asked. My leg pounded. There would be a huge bruise there for weeks where the thing had kicked me. Nah, he said. Look, they were just making a toy, but they gave it to kids. Kids believing in things has freaking power. It either created the real ones or it gave access to something similar from the never-never that used that belief to create a place for itself in reality. Then why is it gone all Manson on these people? I asked. Some laws are kind of universal. Like, you are what you eat, the wizard told me. You eat enough nightmares, sooner or later you turn into one. Now, instead of protecting people from nightmares, it uses them to inflict torment. Probably gets energy from it. Oh, fantastic, I said. What can they do? Listen carefully. This thing has laid a fear whammy on you, man. That stuff doesn't work on nights, I said. Horse crap, Harry said. Look, the knights have power, but you have to choose to use it, man. You don't get any get-out-of-jail-free cards. What you get is the chance to fight when other people would get eaten. That thing has gotten into your head. It's scaring you to death, just like those people around you. It's eating you. Harry, I can't see, I stammered. And I swear to God, he shifted to a nearly perfect imitation of Alec Guinness in the original movie. Your eyes can deceive you, he said. Don't trust them. I barked out a laugh that felt like it was going to shatter something in my chest. Or maybe he actually did. Suddenly, I started to get my breath back. Butters, he said. Look, I know it's hard, but there's one way you deal with fear. How? 
I asked him. You stand up and you kick it in the fucking teeth, he said. And there was a quiet, certain power in his voice that had nothing to do with magic. You've forgotten the most important thing a knight needs to remember, Butters. What's that? I breathed. Knights of the Cross aren't afraid of monsters, he said. The monsters are afraid of you. Act like it. Commit to it hard. And have faith. Act like it. Commit. I could do those things. Faith was harder. I'd never asked God to help me handle things before. But I had faith in my friends. One friend in particular. Got it, I said quietly. I guess I better go, Harry. Got work to do. Good hunting night. Thank you, wizard. When I opened the door, things had changed. I'd taken a white sheet from Stan's bed, draped it over my shoulders, and tied two corners around my neck. On the part of the sheet that draped over my chest, I'd taken a first aid sticker from a drawer of supplies beside the bed and stuck the Red Cross symbol over my heart. It wasn't like Sonya's or Michael's cloaks, but it would do. More importantly, I'd put my headphones in my ears, plugged the jack into my phone, and blared Weird Al Yankovic's Now That's What I Call Polka at full volume on loop. I could barely see, and I couldn't hear anything but my goofy, beautiful polka, one of the songs that I knew perfectly at that, which was kind of the point. In the hallway, I could feel the emptiness stretching out around me, and the low fear in the air. The bakabaku had run everyone off the floor. I could dimly see hollow yellow squares retreating, tracking the workmen and nurses and doctors all leaving the floor by the stairs and elevators, leaving it to just the two of us and the trapped, dreaming victims. The fluorescent lights were all flickering and flashing as if they needed changing. I didn't see the hostile red targeting carrot. But I didn't need it. I went to the center of the hall, lifted the sword to a high guard, and felt it ignite and change the way shadows fell on the hall. As Yankovic translated popular music into polka in my ears, I shouted, Baka Baku, betrayer of children, you have lost your path. Come and face me. And I closed my eyes and waited. See, magic isn't really magic. I've spent a lot of time studying the theory, and I know that for a fact. I mean, it is magic, obviously, but it doesn't just happen in a giant vacuum, inexplicably creating miracles. Lots and lots of magic actually follows many of the physical laws of the universe. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed, for example. If the Bakabaku was sending magical fear into people's brains, that fear had to be transmitted by something. It can't just appear magically in someone else's head, poof. It's a kind of broadcast, a signal. And that means that, like other magical broadcasts, such as those used on the communicators I'd designed and built in the past, waves on the EM spectrum were the most likely culprits for those transmissions. Using those things had a side effect of causing distortions in nearby cell phones. It was even more noticeable in headphones. So I listened to one of my recent favorites and waited. My inner ten-year-old was screaming at me to run. I told him to shut his mouth and let me work. And sure enough, about the time Al was singing about looking incredible in your granddad's clothes, I heard the sound distort suddenly in my left ear. Moving quickly is not about effort. It isn't about making every muscle explode in an instant in an effort to be fast. It's about being relaxed, smooth, and certain. The instant I heard the distortion, my body just reacted, turning and sweeping the sword down, all in a single liquid motion. I felt the sword hit, and the blade's hum shifted to a triumphant note. I opened my eyes to see a shape about the size and same general coloring as Miyamune reeling back. There was a much smaller, flesh-colored shape laying on the floor not far from my feet. I tugged the earphones out and heard Miyamune let out a moan of pain, and the last of my fear fell away from me. The Bakabaku bounced off the wall and fell, and I advanced on it, slow and steady. The creature's huge, weird shadow spread onto the wall behind it, even as its human face stared up at me. Who are you? the creature asked. The words that came out of my mouth only sort of felt like my own, 
Ayah, Ashar Ayah, I said quietly. The walls of the empty hallway quivered slightly as the words washed over them, even though I never once raised my voice. The creature just gaped at me. Even now, I heard myself say, it isn't too late for you to turn aside, to be forgiven. I couldn't really see its expression, but I saw the gathering tension in its blurry form, felt the anger in the way it suddenly exhaled and came at me. And the sword of faith swept down one last time and ended it. When Michael picked me up from the hospital in his old white pickup late that night, I was exhausted. He handed me my spare pair of glasses first thing, and I put them on gratefully. Have to do something about that, I said. Maybe sports goggles? Seems like a good idea, he said. How's Stan? He'll be fine, I said. So will the kids. What was hurting them? Something that should have been protecting them, I said quietly. I squinted out the window as he pulled away. Just dissolved into nothing when I took it down. What's wrong? He asked me, his deep voice gentle. I'm not sure I succeeded at this quest, I said. I kept trying to reach out to the creature, to give it a chance to turn away. Sometimes they do, Michael said. Mostly, they don't. It's just, I said. Killing is such a waste. What I did was necessary, but I'm not sure it was good. Killing rarely is, he said, at least in my experience. Could you have done any differently? Maybe, I said. I don't know. With what I knew at the time, I don't know. Would they all be alive if you had done differently? The children? Stan? I thought about it for a moment and then shook my head. I don't think so. Then be content, Sir Knight, he said. Didn't even have to get my hand cut off to get there, I said, and leaned my head against the truck's window. I never knew it when I fell asleep, relaxed and unafraid.